Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Lauren Gorn. And I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And today we're getting enthusiastic about R and R-like sounds, also known as roticity. But first, we have a live show. It's happening in a very few days, <laughs> late April 2021, if you're listening to this from the future. And you can get access to it by becoming a patron, or if you are already a patron, you will have access to it already, and we will send you a link to the live stream video when it goes up. If you've missed the live stream, you can catch it as a bonus Lingthusiasm episode, along with 49 other bonuses, including our most recent one on speaking to kids and pets. really good that it was my turn to say what this episode was about. Because if you said the topic R and R-like sounds, Lauren, I feel like you might say it a little bit differently. I don't know what's wrong with talking about R-like sounds. R-like sounds is a vowel. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely convenient that you were the person to introduce this topic because roticity and this R-ness is something... I can do, and I can definitely do it at the start of words, like red or rice, but it's a sound that is missing from the ends of words for me, and so it it definitely is easier to hear exactly what we're talking about with roticity. I can do it at the start, but when I'm talking about R, I really have to... uh, really have to work it to articulate that. Welcome to International Talk Like a Pirate Day, uh, Lauren R. is this whole episode. I, just, I get a bit over-enthusiastic uh, <laughs> with putting it in there, for sure. But the nice thing is, is because this feature of English accents, where some of them do pronounce the R's after the vowels and some of them don't, is a feature of English accents that is one of the sort of big accent splits that we have in English. Uh, we also don't have to listen to me trying to do the bad impression of non-rhotic people saying, ah, 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 like sounds. <laughs> our entire podcasting collaboration has really led up to this episode. <laughs> this is entirely what our accent distribution was made for. <laughs> it was totally made for this. So yeah, it's a really salient feature across English accents that some of them do have this R after a vowel, post-vocalic R, and some of them don't. And in English, that's what gets called roticity. You know, is this accent rhotic uh, like mine, or is it non-rhotic like yours? And the class of R-like sounds is something we'll be talking about all episode, because uh, it's a bit of a grab bag both within English and across languages more broadly. Yeah. And, you know, what exactly we mean by an R-like sound is one of those sort of like nebulous, squishy categories that like, it seems like it makes sense and then you look at it too hard and then it starts making sense and then you realize that you can sort of drift your mind into soft focus and have it make sense again. (laughs) But one of the things that I enjoyed learning about English accents is how is it that, you know, in Canada we have this this R and in Australia you don't have it? You know, where, where does that come from? It's a really nice example of how migration creates these little accent time capsules. So the R sound is something that's very easy to lose from the ends of words. Across languages, this happens. It's like a very easy target for something to get lost. And so it was far more common in England like four centuries ago when a lot of people migrated and the areas that people migrated from in England and the British Isles and the United Kingdom more generally, people migrated to what is now the United States and Canada, and they had more of this R at the end of words as a feature. And then a couple of centuries later, when the colonists arrived in Australia from the United Kingdom, that feature was far less common there. And so 
You don't find it in Australian or New Zealand accents, but you do find it in those North American accents more predominantly. Not always, but as a kind of general feature. And so you have this really nice time capsule just because the migrants came a couple of centuries earlier to the US than they did to Australia. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a neat, you know, you can, I mean, there are obviously historical records of when all this migration was happening, but it's kind of comforting to know that if we didn't have those historical records, we might be able to reconstruct them from the accents. Yeah. Or if we didn't have those records, and for some reason, the lack of R was also really common in North America, we have the written record in English to show us that there is an R at the end of words like car, that there isn't in some other words. And as a, someone who doesn't have this feature, sometimes if I'm trying to put on a North American accent, I kind of overapply it to words where there isn't an R in writing as well. I recently tried to say the word tuna, the fish, mm -hmm. uh, with an American accent and, and overcompensated and went with tuna, <laughs> uh, which is absolutely not correct and also a terrible accent. <laughs> and also, you know, that's a piano tuner or something. Oh yeah, a tuner, a tuner that you tune a piano with is, it sounds exactly the same for me, but it's a completely different spelling and a completely different word. Well, and the interesting thing is, you know, I do have R's in my accent, but I'm, I'm also very accustomed to hearing non-rhotic accents because, mm -hmm. you know, I think I've, I've listened to more, more Australian English in the last, say, five years or so because, <laughs> you know, we talk to each other quite a lot during this podcast. Uh, I visited mm -hmm. Australia, but even before that, you know, I'd consume plenty of like British media and stuff like that, which a lot of the British accents are non-rhotic, but some of them are still rhotic, especially in the North and in Scotland and so on. I, so I consumed a lot of non-rhotic accents and I'm used to hearing it. In many cases, you know, if you're used to hearing those accents, you don't even necessarily notice it as, oh, there aren't R's here. You notice it, this just sounds like it's from wherever. But I sometimes, when I'm hearing a non-rhotic speaker, I over-apply and I insert mentally R's in what they're trying to say, even when they aren't trying to say an R, because I'm so used to sort of reconstructing that R in my head. Amazing. <laughs> you just hallucinate sound is basically what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. A, a non-rhotic friend of mine was recently talking about lava, like, you know, like the thing that comes up from the earth in a volcano, mm -hmm. but saying like, there's a lot of lava here. I misheard her as saying larva. As in like bug babies. Yes, as in bug babies, <laughs> which is a very different mental image from like molten rock. Especially if you think of them like spewing out of the earth like a volcano, <laughs> it's actually terrifying. It's kind of horrific. Um, but yeah, like sometimes you can, it happens in both the production and the perception side. Like sometimes you can hear an R that isn't there or hear a, a ghost of an R that, that wasn't there, or you can end up producing it when you when you weren't trying to. And I think it is really interesting that... Um, Obviously, I consume a lot of Australian media, you hear a lot of Canadian voices, but we also, the kind of two big producers of culture for the Anglosphere, English speakers, um, is that kind of Southern England English and the North American English, and one in England is traditionally marked with not having R at the end of words pronounced, and American English does have that R, it's very rhotic. And so... We're exposed to both types very commonly, which is why I think it's hard to hear or remember that you're hearing it. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about this in terms of, you know, the the prestige varieties in both of these places, because mm-hmm. there are American accents that are non-rhotic. So in the American South, a lot of the accents don't don't have that R at the end of the syllable. And there are British accents that are rhotic, especially in the North. But the prestigious accent that you find on media and television, unless a character is sort of being stereotyped as having an accent, the unmarked accent that you see on both of these is different with respect to that R. And this was something that was one of those early revelations that I had as a budding linguist of like, hey, here's this R. And in one country, it's having the R that's prestigious, and it's not having the R that's sort of looked down on. And in the other country, it's not having the R that's prestigious, and it's having the R that's more stigmatized. Clearly, it's not R's fault here. R is just a consonant, just trying to live its life. Just a hapless victim. (laughs) It's a hapless victim of of our human prejudices. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, this is not a... Well, there's not some sort of objective right or wrong answer of like, is R good or is R bad? You know, and other things that are associated with particular accents are also neutral variables, but some of them are are widely disparaged all over, and some of them are widely prestigious mm-hmm. all over. And this one is interesting in case of R because it has this local difference on whether it's prestigious or not prestigious. And it's made it a really attractive topic of study for linguists who are interested in the social values that we apply to different accents. And one thing I find particularly interesting in the American context where this has been studied quite a lot is that it's not just a matter of whether you have a rhotic accent or not. There are lots of people who can produce the rhotic accent and do include that R at the end of words or might not, depending on the social context and how fancy they want to sound. Which means that we get to talk about probably one of the most famous studies in English sociolinguistics. Yes, there's this very classic study by Villabov, who is an American sociolinguist, and he went to three different levels of department stores, one that was very fancy and one that was sort of mid-level and one that was like a bargain basement store. And you really get a feeling for like this sort of vintage department store vibe. Mm -hmm. He found the location of something like, I think the women's shoe section is what he says in the paper, um, that was already on the fourth floor. And he would find it on the map. And then he would go up to saleskeepers and say, hey, can you tell me where to find the women's shoes? And they would say, fourth floor. And he would say, pardon me? Or they would say, fourth floor. (laughs) Yes, fourth floor, in my bad imitation of a New York accent. And uh, he would say, pardon me, and then they would say it again and kind of more distinctly. And then he would go around the corner and whip out his notebook and like write down whether or not they said the R in both the first one, the natural one, and then the kind of careful or more enunciated one afterwards. And you could more or less map the fancier the department store, the more likely the salesperson was to use the rhotic R. And if you asked someone to repeat something, it then becomes careful speech where they're trying to be as articulate as possible for whatever that means, and they're more likely to include an R in that context as well. So you see all these factors really elegantly. I think this this study is attractive because it's so elegant in how it was set up, that people are more likely to use an R to sound fancy in New York in this context. And it's been replicated over decades and people have moved more towards R and it's become the kind of concrete kind of standard of pronunciation. 
Yeah. Also, I think it's just such a fun mental image of like some guy with a notebook, like wandering around from department store to department store. Yeah. Um, we, when we were doing Crash Course Linguistics, one of the thought bubbles, which are little animated bits, um, we actually suggested and they took our suggestion that they do a little animated lipo of wandering from a department store to department store. So that's a really cute animation that you can now watch. It also means that the concept of the fourth floor has become a bit of a linguist in-joke, and I am so pleased to say that my office at work is on the fourth floor. (laughs) I went to a Linguistic Society of America conference a number of years ago, in which all the conference rooms at the hotel were on the fourth floor, and you could just hear all the linguists taking delight in saying to each other, which way to the conference? Go to the fourth floor! (laughs) (laughs) You could not have planned that better. Uh, so it's it's also a bit of a meme in linguistics that stuff happens on the fourth floor, but it's a fairly salient thing about English accents that they do different things with ours. And then there's also downstream effects of, you know, what happens when your accent only sometimes has this R. Yes, even though I say that I don't have an R at the end of words, if you were to actually monitor my speech very carefully and do all the fancy phonetician sound analysis things, or even just use your ears, I have R popping up at the end of words all the time in the context known as linking or obtrusive R, which is where you get a word that should have an R at the end, and then you have another word that begins with a vowel. And so because your your R's are only dropped when they're at the end of a syllable, when they're after a vowel, if there's another vowel following that can kind of become the host for that R, then you don't need to drop it anymore. So if I said something like car and driver or pastor and source, so it can even go in where there wouldn't be an R. I guess if I said something like tuna and rice. Yeah, there's a bit of an R there, whereas I have tuna and rice and there's nothing R-like there because for me, tuna and tuner you know, tuner and player or something like that. Those are totally different. But it's a way for my accent to mark the boundary between words in a way that works, even though I can't say an R at the end of a word without trying very hard. (laughs) Very hard. In English. I should say R at the end of words is a feature of Nepali and I can do that fine. (laughs) And I don't think about it in Nepali and I don't think about it in English, but I have to put an R there. I have to work so hard in English. (laughs) So hard. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> and it's something that sort of stands out more strongly if you're a non-rhotic speaker, because to me, like I'm always paying attention to that R when it's after a vowel. And so having it show up in pasta and sauce or tuna and rice, it's it, that's very salient to me, as opposed to just being like a thing you can stick between stuff. There's also sometimes this like R or lack of R shows up in certain sort of stereotyped pronunciations of things. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking... You know that song in The Sound of Music where you're like learning the names of the notes? Yes. You know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. And they have this bit mm-hmm. that's like fa, a long, long way to run. Yeah, because it's fa, a long, long way to run. You're running far. Uh, no, you're running far. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, because far in that song is F-A. It's F-A. Yeah, I guess it's a homophone, but it's not a homograph. They're not written the same. And it's a homophone for me, but not for you. It's a homophone for for clearly the writers of this song. And as a child, I was like, what word are they trying to get me to say? You know, because something like tea, a drink with jam and bread, like, that's fine. I don't write those the same, but also I not still pronounce it tea. Yes. <laughs> I still pronounce it tea. Like, we're okay with that one. But fa, a long, long way to run. I had to, like, stop and think and be like, what word are they trying to get at here? 
one of those classic scenarios of a bunch of supposed German speakers in German singing a song <laughs> that only the whole song actually falls apart because they're English homophones. Yeah, none of these are none of these are German words. Like they're in Austria. Why are they singing all these English rhymes? <laughs> It's like the, you know, you find the ancient inscription in the cave and somehow you translate this poem into English and it rhymes perfectly in English. And you're like, this was written in Sumerian. Like, what? (laughs) This is why we're super fun to watch films with. (laughs) Yeah. Like, come on. Like, well, how does this song work in English? They're speaking German. (laughs) This reminds me of another thing I have confounded you with in (laughs) non-rhotic English, which is that because I don't pronounce the R... I can use A-R-G-H to represent a kind of excited exclamation of like, ah! Oh no! And uh, I have on occasion used this at Gretchen as a like form of messaging enthusiasm and Gretchen has seen it as like, I am- Like, arg! I got ice cream! And it's like, why are you upset about the ice cream? I thought ice cream was nice! Uh, and it turns out that we have completely different <laughs> readings of this because in my non-rhotic accent, it has way more of just a general exclamatoriness. And like, what what do you read arg or r as? It's an expression of frustration for me. Like, arg, arg, I don't want to do this. Like, arg, I got a flat tire or something. <laughs> Not arg, I got free ice cream. So I can use it in a much more broad range of. <laughs> context and like maybe this is just me maybe this is some idiosyncratic usage but like ahr i I have a broader range of context for but it is very distinct from arc so i would have to say something like ah i got ice cream ah yeah 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 this is this is fine okay but i had this experience when i was reading uh especially like you know british children's fiction or british ya Mm -hmm. and the characters would say things like erm and er uh, and i was like okay fine you know like er i don't know where this is or like erm i don't know the answer and i was like that's just what they say in british sure that's fine uh but how would you pronounce erm and er yeah they say er and um um let me think about that i uh don't know i do know exactly like that <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't realize until much, much later that there was just an erotic description of the pronunciation that I would write um and uh, U-M and U-H. I guess this is one context where audiobooks read by someone who has the same general roticity as the original author would be very handy. Yeah, because I think, like, among me and at least some other nerds of my generation, (laughs) sometimes I do write er- what I'm like in text because to me it has like a slightly different meaning from uh because I encountered it in text. Amazing. But the best one of, you know, you read something and it's written for an accent that's not your accent is, you know, the donkey character in Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore. Yeah. As I would say Eeyore because there's an R in the writing there. <laughs> and I didn't learn until I was, you know, like well into my 20s that, of course, A.A. Milne was a non-rhotic speaker and he would have pronounced that donkey E-R, like the sound a donkey makes. Mm-hmm. I, this is like, this is a massive revelation for me. And you're just like, yeah, I've known this my entire life. Uh, yes, because donkeys <laughs> have a non-rhotic accent. I thought that was obvious to everyone. <laughs> donkeys don't have ours. <laughs> A lot of these particular R's that we're talking about are specifically the R at the end of a syllable or the what linguists call R-colored vowels. That sort of like it's a vowel and it's an R smushed together. And this is how I would say the name of the letter 
R. It's not R. <laughs> uh, it's it's sort of all one R, all one thing, or er, like in tuner or player or maker or any of these words that end in er. Yeah, if you were writing it down in a like specific phonetic notation, you wouldn't have a vowel and then a distinct R there together. Yeah, and and sometimes there's a bit of gradients in terms of how you do that. But if you think of something like, say I'm saying a single syllable that ends in an unambiguous consonant like at, mm-hmm. I have two different things going on in my mouth at the same time. I have the ah part, and then immediately after that, I have my mouth closing to make the, the T. Mm-hmm. But for R or er, my mouth is staying in the same position, and I can just make the er, I can make the vowel and the rness of it at the same time without having to change my tongue position or anything about my mouth position. And so that's what it means when a vowel mm. can have r features on it at the same time or be r colored. That's why we also hedge by talking about r like sounds because it's not that this is separately and by itself the sound r, but that it has this influence over the vowel. Yeah, it's got this influence over the vowel, especially when it's sort of written as coming after it. If you have something like ra or re, re, you do have ra, you do have a movement from the r at the beginning to afterwards. But that's that's mm-hmm. why it's so easy to drop that r after a vowel, because it's already just sort of a slightly different position for how you're holding that vowel. And R-colored vowels are like a thing that every, you know, everyone taking intro English linguistics learns about because it's like a thing that we have in English. And I haven't learned any other languages that have them, but you never know what that sort of means about your language typology. Whether this is like some super common phenomenon and you just happen to have not learned a language with it, or whether it's just a a weird North American thing. (laughs) Yeah, not even all of English. But yeah, it turns out that R-colored vowels are both very rare and very common, depending on how you measure commonness. And that's because they also turn up in a couple of the more dominant varieties of Mandarin. And this is one of those things that it was really nice to be able to put a name to, but I realized that I had been using this R-coloredness to help myself distinguish between whether I was likely overhearing Mandarin or spoken Cantonese, because Ah. this R colouring is really common, especially in really major dialects like Beijing and other northern Chinese varieties of spoken Mandarin. Yeah, so it's on the one hand, R coloured vowels occur in less than 1% of the languages of the world, at least as we're currently able to measure them. But in terms of the they speakers. occur in two of the most widely spoken languages, right? North American English or, you know, certain varieties of English and certain varieties of Chinese, both of which have millions and billions of speakers. And are really common as the kind of prestige types in media as well. Yeah, and a really common second language. Uh, and there are also R-colored vowels in Quebec French, huh. um, where you have R- a bit more, now that I'm thinking about it, is more a feature of Quebec French than in France French, and in some varieties of Brazilian Portuguese, and, you know, a few other languages, a few indigenous languages, uh, like Yurok in the US. But there is a whole name for this phenomenon in Chinese, because it's common in Mandarin, and it's called Erhua. It, it works differently to how rhoticization works in, in English, because it's sort of obligatory in certain contexts in English, whereas the way that it happens in Mandarin is like other things. I don't speak this, so I'm not exactly sure what the what the details are, but apparently it's used by by speakers to, you know, notice people from from different varieties. 
It's so interesting that it was a feature I had been attracted to in Mandarin and you had noticed without particularly noticing in Quebec French until we put together this episode and realized we were attending to the same phenomenon of our coloring. Yeah, and this gets us into this broader class of R-like sounds. So linguists talk about rhotics, but if you've learned languages beyond English, really any language other than English, you've probably learned a different way to produce those particular R sounds because like, oh, this language has yet a different R. And it's one of those sort of interestingly nebulous bits of linguistics that people seem to share this very strong intuition that some sounds are R-like. And yet when you're trying to actually put your finger on well, what makes them R-like, it becomes a way more complicated question. <laughs> I guess one of the ones that is most immediately noticeable because it's quite a fancy R is the R in, um, I like to pronounce trilled R when I was learning Polish in a word like pierogi. Uh, it's not as strong, but I could really emphasize it and talk about pierogi, which is definitely not how I would normally say that word, but you can hear that kind of trilling of the R sound. Yeah, I learned, well, I tried to learn, uh, I was, I encountered this R when I was trying to learn Spanish in high school and I, I got okay at Spanish, but I had a really hard time with this R because Spanish has two R's. Mm -hmm. It has the tap R, uh, like in perro, meaning butt, and then it has the, there's this trilled R, uh, like in the word for dog, which is perro, perro, perro. which I'm still not very good at. <laughs> uh, and I can kind of make it now because there was a really helpful YouTube video uh, that I watched like a couple years ago after way too many years of trying and failing to produce this trilled R with the tip of your tongue. And it turned out uh, the thing about the trilled R's is that you have to sort of get a part of your mouth vibrating at such a fast speed that you don't have conscious control over it. And so the way that you do that is you direct air in your mouth towards a place that's sort of just a little bit in front of where you actually want the vibration to happen. It's sort of like blowing into an instrument with a reed in it or blowing into like a blade of grass between your fingers. You can direct that air and make this sort of wavy, I think it's the Bernoulli reaction, <laughs> happen in your mouth. And that's what's making this sound that's like too fast for you to do it consciously. And the mistake that I had been making was to direct the air actually at the tip of the roof of my tongue, rather than directing it a little bit before so that the tongue kind of wave in the breeze like a little flag. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and I'm still not 100% on it, but I can sometimes kind of do that. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> it's interesting that the R sound that the trill contrasts with is just a single tap. So instead of a kind of repeated tapping motion, it's just that single pedal. And one thing that is difficult about these R-like sounds that we're talking about is that that is more like something that we sometimes use for a D in English or a T in the word like butter, if we're just saying it very rapidly. And so it is an R thing in Spanish, but it's not necessarily an R thing in English. Yeah. And that's what makes the category of like rhotics or R-like sounds such a, a bizarre thing because it's like, basically it's an R if people think it's an R. <laughs> But there's a lot of agreement within speakers about like, oh, yeah, you know, this feels like an R to me. Um, and this doesn't feel like an R. Like, I really had to, like, convince myself that the sound in, like, water or butter or something was actually the same as in pero, because I was like, but those feel like different sounds to me, even though mm. I can produce them both. And I guess my tongue is doing the same thing, but one of them feels like an R. 
Whereas for the trill, you can replace an English R. You could say, let's talk about roticity. And that fits in as an R. I'm sorry. To That's great. No, please. Let's talk about I'm just jealous that I can't make it. Sorry to show off there. But you can see that in English, at least, that trilled R can substitute in for our usual R. Yeah. And it sounds fancy, but it still sounds like an R. So yeah, the, if I you know, encounter a language and I'm like, oh, it's got this alveolar trilled R with the tip of the tongue. I'm like, oh, yeah, totally normal R, nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing surprising. You know, it's found in Italian, it's found in, in Spanish, Russian, Ukrainian, Dutch, Bulgarian, Swedish, you know, like, oh, there's a whole bunch of languages that have this trilled R with the tip of the tongue. And there are also a lot of languages that have the tap, which is just the single the single tap. Um, so again, Spanish also has it, Japanese and Korean both have it. This is quite common in a lot of languages as well. I can do that trill at the alveolar, but I do struggle with the one that happens further back in the mouth uh, that you find in French. Oh, yay, that's and, the one I can uh, do. It's in French and German <laughs> and languages like modern Hebrew as well. So, um, again, one of this category of R-like sounds, but a bit further back. <laughs> yeah, so this is the one that uses the little dangly bit in the back of your throat that you can see if you, you know, look in a mirror and scream. I think of it as a sort of cartoon screaming mm -hmm. thing. And if you can get that one waving in the back of your throat, uh, I'm good at this one. My theory is that people are either good at this, you get one. The, the throat one, <laughs> or the or the tip of the tongue one, and that very few people are good at both of them. But like many people can do one or the other <laughs> and are very frustrated that they can't do the other one. <laughs> and uh, there are sort of a variety of things that are done with the sort of back of the throat that are often kind of lumped together. So in French, you can have like roi, word for king, or rue, uh, the word for street. And you can kind of or you can make it either with the vocal cords vibrating or not vibrating. Mm -hmm. And that's, you can pretty much just sort of do whichever one you want. <laughs> but something that's interesting about French is that French actually underwent a shift from the tip of the tongue one, which is still produced by like a few, I think it's mostly like old men in rural Quebec, okay, <laughs> who pr still produce the one that's that you have in Polish. Uh, they still produce that R. Again, migration working as an amazing time capsule creation yeah. device. And most of French speakers, including, you know, most people in, in Quebec, but like, you know, in younger people, but like occasionally you get some like, especially old men in, you know, less geographically central areas who still have that one, because this has happened over the last like 100 years that French has switched what kind of R it has. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why you can say like, well, what do these two sounds have in common? Okay, they're both produced as a trill with with that sort of very fast vibration, but so is the trill with the lips. And basically no languages consider the lip trill to be an R. Like that one's hmm, <laughs> that one's not an R. Um like I don't know of any languages that consider that one to be an R-like sound, but the other two that are, you know, midway in the mouth and back in the throat, those are R-like and yet not this other one. So you do get the reason why it sort of makes sense to consider all of these sounds together in the R-like category is because sometimes languages really do like hop from one to the other hmm. because they still feel R-like somehow, even though we don't have a, a good way to pin down exactly what it is physically that you're doing that makes it R-like. You can tell the sounds that linguists 
think fit into this category because the international phonetic alphabet character for them tends to be some variation on our character for the letter R. (laughs) He's like shameless pandering to the R lobby. It's really like one of the cruelest things we do to people trying to learn to memorize all the symbols on the IPA because you have what we think of as a common R in English for words like red or rhotic uh, is the letter R upside down those uvular ones that you were talking about, is it a capital R upside down? The trill uh, at the alveolar that we were talking about is the standard letter R, and so they're all just little variations on it. One of the things that, speaking of R's that vary, that I learned when we were researching this, is that in Mm -hmm. northern England there were once accents that used this the back of the throat R like French has, which was described as a burr. Ah, that's what people are trying to get at with that description of northern accents. Yeah, because I've read, you know, I don't know if it was Jane Austen specifically, but like that kind of era of English writer where they would say, oh, and this character had a burr in his voice. And I was just like, ah, a little fuzzy (laughs) Velcro creature that sticks to you. Like, what are you talking about this? But it's actually trying to describe this R that people had. And again, a nice example of the incredible variety of rhotic things that people have done with English. Yeah. And what's interesting is this R2 is not always an R in every language because (laughs) Mm -hmm. Arabic has a kind of bog standard, you know, tip of the tongue R, like is common in very many languages. I actually had to go look up like, what kind of R does Arabic had again? Because I studied it for a few years and I've forgotten what kind of R. Oh, they had the normal one. Okay. (laughs) But Arabic also has a sound that's very similar to what in French is the R sound at the back of the throat, but it's not treated as an R for the purposes of the rest of Arabic. It's written with a GH when you're transcribing Arabic, and it's produced in a very similar manner as what French considers an R, but it's not an R sort of language internally based on what people think of as R-like, in a similar way as this like D in water. So there's this very loose set of what linguists broadly think of as potentially R-like, and then that manifests differently depending on the language and the other sounds that it's in contrast to. Yeah, exactly. And maybe the best example of this is that there's a certain mm-hmm. kind of sound that in some contexts can be an R-like sound, but in most of the time in English is more like a W. Right. Is that like the very fancy received pronunciation English accent of talking about loticity? Mowage is what brings us here together today. <laughs> Hmm. It's also a not uncommon phase for children to go through. And I think it's worth Mm -hmm. saying if you have any anxiety about not being able to produce one of the trills or one of the other R-type sounds that we've talked about today, it's very common to not be able to hit sounds that aren't in your languages that you've grown up with. Like R is one of those hard sounds even for like English-speaking children who've been exposed to it from birth. Yeah, children go through developmental stages where it takes them a while to get the hang of it. And a lot of the time they'll just outgrow it and it's worth just keeping an eye on and enjoying while it briefly occurs. But, you know, if it's kind of persistent and your child is uh, kind of getting into like three and four and it's really not moving at all, that can be a time to maybe chat to a speech pathologist. But it is a completely normal phase to go through. It's also completely normal to not be able to acquire sounds that aren't in the languages that you are exposed to and that you speak. So don't be too hard on yourself if you can't hit one of those trills. 
I have lost track of the number of small children, you know, like extended family and friends, kids who have called me Gwetchen for six months. Oh my gosh, too cute. <laughs> Gwetchen. Too cute. <laughs> it's great. It's really wonderful. It's so cute. Uh, and there's, you know, sort of the classic Looney Tunes, wascally wabbit. This is clearly also sort of a stereotyped feature of a certain kind of childish speech in English. And, you know, in addition to this T and <laughs> GH and W sometimes have ties with R, another really interesting sound that has ties with R is the Z sound, mm -hmm. which is often written with S, but actually pronounced Z, as in Z. And in both the history of English and the history of Latin and the history of other languages, sometimes you get a Z changing to an R. And this is how we get words like was and were. Ah, it's one of those things that's been staring me right in the face. <laughs> yeah, was and were, is and are. Mm. Uh, rise and rear, as in to bring up. Ah, yes. And the suffixes er and est, as in like bigger, biggest, ah. is another pair. Or words like more and most, better and best loss and forlorn oh my gosh this is this is a lot of very core english that i'm rethinking for the first time <laughs> right so like sometimes like a s or z just becomes an r or vice versa especially the r often shows up between two vowels so the s changes to a z sound between two vowels and then that z can change to an r because if you're producing your R sort of with like with a tongue near the near the front of the mouth, mm -hmm. that's kind of also where you're pronouncing a z sound. So they're mm. not quite as different as you might think they are, at least if you're producing that particular R. And there's also examples of this in Latin. Right. So you have things like genus or genus and generis. Which gives us genre. Genre and generic and a whole bunch of words like that. Wow. And genus like species. Mm-hmm. And this happens in a bunch of languages. It's not just those two, but you can see it in English. You're like, wait, this has been here all along. It's another really great example of how roticity and rotic sounds have this incredible flexibility and ability to change over time that makes them such an interesting little feature to kind of pull apart and look at across a single language, across history, or across lots of different languages. And you can kind of start off going, okay, we're going to look at R-like things, and you can dig down and dig down and build more of an appreciation, and you kind of dig down so far you come back to, they're all just kind of R-like things. <laughs> so you know how, like, in nature, like, the shape of a crab, like the sideways scuttling, you know, pincy arm thing, mm -hmm. has evolved in, like, several completely different branches of the family tree? Yes. And they call this cancericization. Everything wants to become a crab. <laughs> like, that's that's cancer as in the zodiac sign, not cancer as in the disease. I think there's also maybe like, <laughs> rhoticization is kind of like cancericization. Everything wants to become a crab. Everything wants to become an R. R just like shows up and has its little pincing fingers <laughs> in so many different places. And it's never quite the same thing whenever you come across something written as an R in a language. It's always good to keep an open mind about exactly what that is and exactly how it's used. But uh, it's a little recurring motif. Yeah. And so you, you keep coming back to this sense of similarity that people have noticed over and over again, even though these sounds are produced in incredibly different ways.
Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar, just analyzing it t-shirts, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter, my blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet. I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to 49 bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm, or follow the links to our website. Patrons also get access to our Discord chat room to talk to other linguistics fans and other rewards, as well as helping keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include talking to babies, reduplication, and an AMA with the two of us. If you can't afford to pledge, that's okay too. We really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone who needs a little more linguistics in their life. Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gaughan. Our senior producer is Claire Gaughan, our editorial producer is Sarah Dapirala, and our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic! Lingthusiastic!